The Polar Talks 2015 are brought to you in association with SAS Scandinavian Airlines. Thank you so much. Wow. Uh, thank you so much. It is true, the amazing Swedish people. You've been welcoming me here since, like, I think, 1976 or something like that. So here I am. <laughs> yeah, you've been here a lot, actually, in Sweden. That's right. Uh, but this maybe is your first standing ovation or... No, no. They know they've been to my shows. They've been very, very kind to me. <laughs> I understand that you are currently started to work on a book uh, about your life. Well, it, everybody in the world seems <coughs> to be writing a book, and I, I got a lot of, uh, there was a lot of pressure uh, and interest, which is uh, very enticing, and I didn't really want to do it, but I figured somebody somewhere was going to write my life and it should probably be me. <laughs> so. But I heard when we met briefly yesterday that you're doing this in a quite special way. You're doing it with a journalistic approach. You're uh, seeking up people and interview them about the subject of Emily Harris. Well, yeah. there's a lot I didn't remember. Or I remembered I didn't understand the timeline. Um, so in a way it's been interesting going back to a lot of my old friends and reconnecting them or people I see a lot and sitting down and asking about specific time periods. Uh, I, I've only gotten up to um, 1973. <laughs> Got a long way to go. <laughs> um, so, so you're co connecting with like old high school friends and asking uh, them what they remember? I don't really care about high school. No? Um, I remember all that pretty well. It was mainly uh, college and then starting out with my musical career. Um, I lived a lot of places, uh, traveled around uh, before I settled in Washington, D.C., where Graham uh, discovered me. And um, so um, there was just a, a, the timeline was a bit uh, uh, hard to decipher, but I, I've kind of untangled that fishing tackle. And... Um, I don't know. It's just uh, it's interesting going back and visiting mm. uh, that part of your life. Although sometimes it gets a little annoying to remember who you were at a certain period in your life. You like to think that you were always so together, and you find out no, whoops, oops, <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, if we start a little bit earlier, uh, now you live in Nashville since a long time, and you are seen as a part of the country scene. But that's not where you started. You started more as a folk singer, right? Right. Well, uh, I, I was very inspired by, um, well, first of all, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, and then I, I discovered Dylan and Joan Baez and all the folk music, uh, both currently and a lot of the old folk music that was being played on a radio station I could get out of American University in Washington, D.C. So my father was stationed. He was in the Marine Corps. was a helicopter pilot. Um, um, in uh, station in Quantico. 
but I could get the radio uh, uh, station, and this fellow named Dick Sari would play um, all this wonderful music for five hours, and I was just became completely obsessed with uh, uh, learning all these songs as long as they only had three chords, and um, and I still only know three chords. Um, so yes, I loved folk music, and my brother was a huge who's who's older, uh, is and still is a, a huge country music fan, and he owned the record player, and I really kind of disdained it. Uh, the only record that I really liked uh, that he played was uh, Johnny Cash's first record, um, and um, but of course later on I became a huge country music convert. When I was working with Graham, mm-hmm. I was just too young or ignorant to appreciate the subtleties of, of the real mm. good, strong, uh, deep uh, country music. Yeah. You just mentioned your father that was in the military, and he was a, a prisoner of war for a couple of years when you grew well, up. Well, he, uh, he and my mother met uh, during World War II. He had been a, uh, studying veterinary medicine uh, in, um, in uh, the United States. And when uh, the war broke out, he joined the Marine Corps, and he and my mother met quite by accident. It was that's all in the book. You can read about it in the book because it's actually, to me, the most interesting part of the whole story. Um, and um, so my brother was born while he was in the Pacific Theater, and then he got out of the service but was in the reserves. And then when the Korean conflict—they still don't call it a war. Uh, he went back in as a pilot, and he was shot down soon after he um, arrived there and spent pretty much the whole war in a prisoner war camp where he was the senior officer, so he he had a pretty hard time. He was the one who was he sort of chose to torture. But he was very strong, and he was determined to get back to his his wife, who he loved very much, and his children. And so I do remember that. I was five years old when he left, and six years old when he came back. And um, we were just very lucky. I don't know if anybody appreciates, you know, what, what service couples go through, those separations when you never know if you're going to see that person again. Um, so I have a great deal of uh, sympathy for for our, our soldiers who are in battle. Yeah. Uh, when, you, when you said that Graham Parsons sort of discovered you, uh, the way you two sang together, sort of changed the history of popular music, really. Really? Yes, definitely, definitely. I think no one has done... I like the sound of that. (laughs) Uh, No one has done harmony singing in that way. Can you talk a little about how did you develop that sort of style with you two singing together? You know, it wasn't anything... uh, I mean, for me... I was a struggling singer. I had a, uh, I had a child, a uh, single mother, working in clubs uh, six nights a week. Great deal of help from my parents who just, without any kind of criticism, what are you doing with your life sort of thing, they, they gave me a sanctuary to try to get my life together. But I still really didn't know how to do anything but, but sing. And fortunately, where they were living at the time was near Washington, D.C., that had a really healthy, interesting local music scene. You know, people writing and performing their own music. Uh, there were a lot of colleges, universities there, and so uh, you could actually make a small living doing your, your own music in, in clubs. And um, and I had friends that got me uh, jobs there. 
Um, so when Graham, you know, I got this ticket in the mail to go to L.A., I'm thinking, you know, I don't know really who this guy is, but, you know, he's obviously, you know, you know, in, you know, he's got uh, some national recognition, and I'm just going to go out there, and I don't know what's going to happen. We had sung the first night we met. He came to my gig, and we sang two or three songs. And I was familiar with country music because of my brother, and I sang a couple of country music songs almost as a joke in my sets, along with Bob Dylan songs and some originals and things like that. I was very eclectic in, the, in my repertoire. Um, so I didn't really know what was expected of me, and I just went out there, and there was a song, and we would sing on one mic, and I... I didn't even know if the record would come out. I was paid $500, and I immediately went home and bought a guitar because my the one guitar that I had had been smashed up on the airlines and um, didn't really expect to hear anything after that. But it turns out that I, he did invite me to come on the road. And so, you know, the rest, I guess, is history. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, wow. <laughs> might be a difficult question. How do you become a good singer? Oh, boy. I, you know, well, first of all, you have to just be born with, with the, able to carry a tune. Um, not everybody is. Um, and uh, that's, that's a matter of luck, I guess. I, I don't know. I, I, I think for me, you know, I just would sing because I, I loved the sound of the... I love the lyrics, for one thing. I was really into the lyrics of those songs I was hearing, those wonderful old folk songs. Um, and it's still kind of that way. I'm still kind of lyric-driven. Um, I, I think singing with other people. Well, that's the way I really learned to sing, singing with Graham. And then um, harmony singing with other people and people singing harmony with me has really been a big part of almost all the records I've made. Um, but um, maybe you answered that with like you're very lyric driven not all singers are lyric driven but you sort of inhabit the songs well it's, it's uh, to me it's you're telling a story and uh, you know it's funny I, I wish I could answer the questions but, but I don't it's a totally a non-thinking process in fact my friend Daniel Lanois says thinking is the enemy of music <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, it's a process. You, you, you have to love it, of course. And I think having good material is... I mean, who wants to sing a boring song, you know? I mean, uh, and, and, and I think singing, only recording a song that you want to sing for the next 40 years, too. Um, you have to love it. You have to, you know, be committed. Uh, for a long time... I know that you saw yourself as an interpreter of other people's songs. Mm -hmm. um, why is that, do you think? You, 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 we will talk a little bit later about that when you started writing your own songs. But maybe that's why you're very lyric-driven and you sort of can tell your own stories through other people's material. Well, you know, uh, when I made a, a very forgettable record in New York City in uh, 1969, uh, that actually had a lot of... I had written some songs. They're a bit sophomoric, but they, they, they were real for me. 
Um, I was messing around with it. Um, and um, But then, you know, when I was... And I would do some of those songs actually in my shows and my little club dates. Um, but as you meet more and more songwriters, let's say Rodney Crowell came into my life and, and I discovered Towns Van Zandt when I was playing at Gertie's Folk City in New York. Um, I opened for just about everybody. I played there like six nights a week. And um, you discover these amazing songs and then you hear someone like Joni Mitchell you know, and, and it's like, God, they're writing my life, you know, why, how can I, why should I even compete with that? They're already written, they're already there, and I just couldn't wait to get my sort of, you know, self around, you know, singing those songs. Now, I did write an occasional song. Um, I wrote Boulder to Birmingham as a, uh, as sort of in, in um, reaction to Graham's death. And yeah, please tell us a little more about well, that song. It's, it's on your Pieces of the Sky <laughs> album, yeah. and it's a fantastic song. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it was a, it, very traumatic and unexpected, Graham's death. And so much of, of my uh, artistic life and even my emotional life was invested in him. And, um, you know, I was very shocked by his death. I mean, he was only maybe a month shy of 27 when he died. And... Um, you know, as you get older, I guess you kind of expect to lose your friends, but it was a shock to me. And um, I just came up with that chorus, and I had a few, I had a few lyrics, and uh, from just just general lyrics. And I don't know. I wrote the lyrics, and I had the melody to the um, to the chorus. But one of the things I remember is I had a great, great friend and champion in Linda Ronstadt, who's still one of my dear, dear friends. And uh, she heard me when I was singing with Graham, um, uh, uh, when we became friends. Uh, and um, after Graham died, she kind of be, took me under her wing. She brought me out to uh, L.A. when she was just on the verge of becoming one of the biggest stars in the world and um, had me stay at her house and had me featured me in her show, I mean, and just talked to everybody in the music business, which was a lot smaller back then, about how great I was, you know, and, and it just incredible generosity. But in that period of time when I was staying with her, they had a huge fire there in L.A. up in the canyons, and you could be down in the city on the, I think we were on Santa Monica Boulevard and at night, and I looked up, and, and it looked like the whole world was on fire, and I, I remember that image. And, and, and you sing about that well, very particular image. Yeah, you have lines about that, that, that in the song. And yeah. it combined with the sort of vulnerability that I was going through. And then I think it was later that night I took a red eye and was flying home, and that sense of uh, I don't want to you know, hear a sad story. I mean, to me, songwriter writing is still a bit of a mystery. Um, I don't know where it comes from, but I do know that you have to put yourself in the room. You know, it's not going to write itself, and if you get an idea, you have to decide to follow it through or not. But I do have songs that I might have a, a, a line or two that it might take me years to figure out what that song is about, and all of a sudden it'll just slide right into this, 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 this place I am at that point in my life. Um, but I certainly couldn't do a seminar in songwriting because it's still a bit of a mystery to me. Um, 20 years later, after The Peace of the Sky, you did 
an album that I think a lot of people here would say is one of their favorite albums is the Wrecking Ball album. Yeah. Uh, and they were talking in a panel earlier, very interesting, that there's genres nowadays are blurring together. It's much more difficult to pin a different genre. And on that album, you definitely did that. It's very hard to, to call it something. You can't really yeah. call it country or folk music or blues music. And that was such a landmark album. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of doing that album? Well, um, genres are difficult. We kind of need them because we like to compartmentalize and describe and compare things. But I, I think that they can be a problem too. Um, and especially right, right before I did, um, right before I did Wrecking Ball, um, there was a big change. I've, I've been with the Warner family since the very beginning, and they've been great to me. But there was a period of time when they didn't really know what to do with me because um, I'd been sort of relegated to Warner Country, and even though I'd started as a country artist, I had more success being kind of outside the lines. I've always kind of been a little outside the lines, even though I really uh, champion very traditional country music. Um, and so... Uh, we had a new group of people that came over uh, to, well, actually it was Warner Asylum, and they opened an office in Nashville. And were really gung-ho. I mean, I'll tell you, this is how convinced they were that they could turn things around. The first artist they signed was Guy Clark. I don't know if you know Guy Clark, but he's sort of our poet laureate of, 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 of songs uh, in Nashville. And... Um, but not exactly a mainstream artist, and they signed Guy Clark and me. Um, and they were convinced that with the right energy and belief that they could get me back on Top 40 Radio, Top 40 Country Radio. Um, and it just didn't happen, you know. That's definitely it, not the It just top didn't, I was not invited to the mm -hmm. party at all. And um, so, and I give them credit for this. They came to me and said, look, we, we really thought we, we, we could, you know, place you back where we feel you belong but what do you want to do next we're going to go we're going to support whatever you want to do and at that point uh there were two records that i listened to constantly one was the uh, dylan's old mercy which had been produced by daniel Lenoir, and the other one was daniel's solo record um 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 thank you very much uh, and so I just, out of the blue, I said, well, the thing, this is, this is what's interesting me now, right? This is, and, and this is the guy that produced it. So they made a phone call, and it just happened that he was looking to do uh, something besides his own music. And um, I don't think we had a clue what we were going to do. We just got together, and I had a bunch of songs, like Orphan Girl and Going Back to Harlan and uh, Deeper Well, um, that I was interested in doing, and uh, he brought a whole bunch of things. He's the one who said, uh, he said, you know, in rock music, you, there are some really amazing traditional country melodies, and he started playing um, Jimi Hendrix, May This Be Love, and I started, he started singing it, and I started harmonizing, because that's what I do, and uh, so, right, okay, we're going to record that, and... Um, and that was something that as soon as from the very first downbeat and the very first song, I knew that something very special was happening. It was those turbulent rhythms and that, that atmospheric sound that, that Dan had 
that is very, very inspiring to sing to. And I think it just, it just got my juices going again as a singer that I didn't even realize that perhaps I had been uh, laying dor a little dormant you know, for a while. So. There's a, we got a video greeting here from Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. And th there's an other greeting that won't be presented to you until tomorrow, I think. So I don't hope I spoil a secret here. But it's not a video greeting, it's just a written down greeting right. from Leonard Cohen. Yes. Yeah. yes. And, and there, there was just a line in that greeting, I only got part of it here, but that sort of feels like a good description of the Wrecking Ball album and you, of course. And he said that your voice makes us feel, and this is the quote, the beauty, the dignity, and the loneliness of America itself, which is a very good description, I think. He's a great writer. <laughs> <laughs> That's, this is amazing. I mean, Leonard Cohen has been one of my heroes. I mean, he is on such a pedest, high pedestal that I can't even see him, you know, in my mind. Uh, I've followed him since I first heard Ju Judy Collins record Suzanne. And then you go, who is this person that wrote this song that is so amazing? It just makes your head explode. And, um, and of course, I've been following him f f all through. I even read his novel and his poetry, everything. So and I've never met him, and all these years we have not run into each other. So um, that'll, that's on my bucket list. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so speaking of your bucket list, you, you, you have a great new album out called The Traveling Kind, mm -hmm. which you've done with Rodney Crowell, who you've been singing to with, with 40 years. Right. And I read an interview where you just quoted the Willie Nelson, uh, <laughs> the, the life I love is making music with my friends. Right. That seems really what you're doing. Definitely, uh, very specifically, on, on, because he's one of my oldest friends, Rodney is. And I couldn't think of a better way to describe working with Rodney than to steal that line from Willie Nelson. Uh, but, you know, in a way, it, all my friends, from the very first, uh, when, when my re career like, kind of took off, all of a sudden I found myself on the road um, with, with musicians. And it's, it's about... You really do become a family. And all the people that I've played music with over the years are still in that family. Some of them just live a couple of blocks away from me in Nashville. Others are far away, but I still see them, especially in writing this book. A lot of them I've uh, you know, had long conversations with on the phone and do this thing in your phone where you can actually tape. You say, I'm taping this now. I want to let you know. Um, so... It has not been a lonely life. I mean, you've got people that really understand everything. You know, they're experiencing the same things you're experiencing in that that workplace. You know, which is you know traveling on the road, on the stage, before the show, after the show. You share these common things almost to the point where you develop your own language. It's strange, but sometimes there are little shortcuts that somebody will. It's almost like you're just grunting to each other, and you know what what the other meant because you've shared this experience, um, uh, and it, it's a, it's been a wonderful journey for me, um, and especially now after all these years, Rodney and I finally, you know, a few years ago we put out Old Yellow Moon, which we had talked about doing a record when we first met in 1974, but I do believe that we have a lot more to say and a lot more to offer as old friends 
who have had parallel experiences and separate experiences and still kept our friendship intact. The sort of the music industry or especially the pop music industry seem to be very obsessed by sort of youth. You're singing about youth, but you have definitely shown that you can sing about every aspect of your life, every age of your life. Oh yeah, I mean, it, it, you have more experiences, so they're the things that are important to you that you want to say. I mean, uh, when you're young, of course, we want to sing about partying, and we always sing about heartbreak. You know, from day one until the end of our lives, there'll be some kind of heartbreak going on. I mean, that's just part of the human condition, you know. You just have to accept it. Um, but I do think that there, you, you, your experiences give you uh, more opportunities to see things from different points of view, perhaps a little more subtlety sometimes uh, in, in, in your poetry and what you want to say. Um, I mean, you are where you are in your life, and you shouldn't try to, you know, pretend that you're 40 years younger than you are, because embrace the life you're living now and the time you're living in, and all that has gone before you, and 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 accept, you know, whatever the future holds. That's my philosophy. <laughs> you don't really have a choice. <laughs> So you might as well have fun with it. <laughs> I think we only have time for one more question, unfortunately. You mentioned it's like a musical family, and now we're part of this polar music, music wow. family. What does that mean to you? It's quite astonishing. I mean, I, I, it actually came full force to me when I went to the ABBA Museum today, which is great. They've done a wonderful job with that, and so nice and interactive and everything. But they have a, a you know the the, the big uh, thing up there with all the pictures of all the former recipients, and for, most of them are just all just heroes of mine, or people that I just see almost in a, a completely different place in the history of music, and to, and to be to be there, it's almost like I'm a grown up now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess we can say that you're a grown-up now. Thank you very much, Emily Harris. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Polar Talks 2015, which are brought to you in association with SAS Scandinavian Airlines. For more from this year's Polar Music Prize, visit polarmusicprize.org.